0: We believe you are God and in control. Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Bram, a ministry of Worship Generation Church located in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now, let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. Their we pick it up in verse
1: 18, where it says, A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that, he became very sorrowful. He said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he, Jesus said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So some background to this man known as the rich young ruler. When we harmonize Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel with Luke's gospel, we are told this man is rich and he's young and he's a ruler. So he's got everything going for him. He's young, he's got wealth in his youth and he has power, okay? Now, we know that he came to Jesus and he came in a sense of self confidence in his own self made religion. So this guy said, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? Which is the opposite of the gospel. What but really is the way world religions are right? What can I do? We saw in the Gospel of John where they say to Jesus, What's the work that we must do to get to heaven? And Jesus says the work of God is to believe in the Son. It's it's faith. And of course we know when Paul the Apostle wrote the Ephesian church, he said, By grace you've been saved, that through faith not of works of self righteousness, lest anyone should boast, we also know in the gospel, excuse me the uh, book of Romans, which is the expounding of the gospel, that no flesh that is self righteousness allows anyone to be justified before God in heaven, because God's a debtor to no one, and if we were so good that God has to accept us, then he would be a debtor to us, but that's not the way it works. We are created by the Lord, and we are redeemed through his Son. And then we enter into that workmanship through being born of the Holy Spirit for God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. And then we do the work that he's doing in us that works through us. But no one earns a way to heaven and justifies himself before God. So this is what this guy is. He's a religious man. He says, what must I do to get to heaven? And it's understandable in the context of, of Judaism at the time. They're under the old covenant. And here's the rabbi Jesus, the famous rabbi from you know Galilee and whatnot. And Jesus says that first statement in verse 19, he gets our attention. Why do you call me good? There's only one that's good. So he's immediately making this guy think about his theology and his perception perception of Jesus. This little saying that Jesus squeezes in here in this verse is basically saying, if you really believe I'm good, then you believe that I'm God, because there is only one that is good, and it's God. Now, we know that Jesus... At times, I had people pick up stones to throw at him because he claimed to be God. He was crucified because he claimed to be God, God the Son. And so here he's he's by saying, "Why do you call me good?" There's only one that's good—that's God. And it's like, oh, it's almost like if there's like a, a debate or a discussion going on where people are just discussing things like the way you can when you exercise civility in a conversation of different thoughts and opinions. Why do you call me good? There's only one that's good. It's God. The guy is trying to justify himself. And Jesus says there's only one that's good, and it's God. So the man obviously can't justify himself, but Jesus can justify him because Jesus is good. That's the point that Jesus is saying here in a little uh, catchy dialogue between the two of them. Jesus says, you know the commandments. So he lets him justify the commandments. Now the commandments he picks are the backside, what we call the horizontal commandments between men and women. They're the human experience commandments. So adultery, theft, murder, that kind of stuff, lying. But the first cluster of commandments, of course, that you'll love the Lord your God, and you'll have no other gods before him. You'll make no images in his name. You'll honor the Sabbath day, and so on and so forth. So Jesus purposely left out the commandments that dealt with the vertical about this man's relationship with God. But the first commandment you'll have no other gods before the Lord your God, and this man's God was his mammon, his wealth, in his case. And Jesus just kind of leaves it out there without calling it out. It's sort of like when, you, when you're talking with someone maybe like an employee and you're the boss and you're talking about something and you're letting them come to the realization of what needs to be done. The best ideas we generally think are ours. So really good leadership is kind of floating things out there so people can express the idea that you want them to express and it becomes theirs and their ownership and they're more out to want to run with it because it's their idea. That's a pretty basic thing in leadership. And by the way, when, you parent, when you're a parent of young adults and becoming uh, full adults, you, 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 you got to get better at it. But really what you try and do is you, you, you want your adult children to make good decisions. And so like you pray that they would and then you kind of put ideas out there or you kind of steer the conversation in such a way where it's like they have the epiphany, they have the idea, it's their idea and it's a really good idea. And then they want to do it as opposed to me saying, you need to do this like, I don't want to do it because you told me to. Why? Because you told me to. So Jesus purposely leaves out where this man is guilty of not obeying God's law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. He leaves out the first part, the vertical. He says, yeah, you're pretty good on the horizontal. You're quite the humanitarian. You're pretty good at that. You've been a pretty good man with your neighbor, but you're not right vertically. There's only one that's good. Why do you call me good? And then he, he exposes it. With the next part of the dialogue. So, you still lack one thing. The first commandment is you'll have no other gods before the Lord your God. The one thing he lacked was his transgression of the first commandment because either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Either God is supreme over our life as a supreme authority or he's not. And this man who sought to justify himself is slowly being exposed by Jesus in his religious pride, much how the woman at the well was also exposed by Jesus, but not for religious pride, but for kind of in a different way. Through the dialogue, Jesus is is bringing this guy around. So he says, just like one thing, sell everything and follow me. Now, what the other gospels tell us is that famous phrase that particularly makes it even harder. Luke left it out, but we need to include it because it gives us insight. You know that phrase that says, pick up your cross and follow me, that phrase. That's also included in this conversation from the other Gospels, as Scripture interprets Scripture. So not only, hey, follow me, but pick up your cross and follow me. Now remember, it was just so offensive, that statement. I mean, when, when Jesus, we get it from the backside looking ba- from history looking back to the event. But you have to remember, before Jesus went to the cross, every time he said, unless you pick up your cross and deny yourself, or I'm going to the cross, it was just so you couldn't even wrap your mind around it. I mean, at the time of Christ, you're just 80 years removed from Julius Caesar, okay, and the Roman Senate and the Roman Republic being established, and you're just 80 years removed from those things. I mean, some of the most profound time in human history, Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire expanding, we're just 80 years from that right here. And crucifixion was the ultimate tool of the Romans to intimidate and terrify, whether it was the Gauls in France or any other people group that they'd conquer going to the east uh, and, and expanding their kingdom into North Africa and the Middle East. Crucifixion was the ultimate form of terror. It was a painful death. It was a humiliating death. And in all the brutalities of humanity, and humanity has no depth of how brutal they can be. Let's be honest. Do not underestimate the evil in humanity. Because we should never underestimate the evil in humanity. Because we're evil to the core. The Bible makes that clear. And we are so brutal and can be such animals without the gospel of grace. And the only reason that we don't act as brutal as most people in the world do is because the remnant of the gospel of grace in this country and the legacy of how this country was established. Look what Europe's been through in the last 150 years. The sheer heinous brutality when the gospel's removed and how people really act. And the Romans, they perfected terror brutality. Before, before, like Hitler and his henchmen and those guys who they did, and, and the, 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 the communists, the Soviets, what they did, murdering millions of people, millions of people in brutality. The Romans, they weren't the first and they weren't the last, and they were brutal. And the cross was the flashpoint of sheer Roman brutality to intimidate and to terrorize. In the Wild West, they just hang people. In the South, they would hang people. In Europe, during World War II, they'd hang the partisans and so on and so forth. The Romans, they would just strip you naked and they'd crucify you publicly and let your friends and family stare at you for the next 24 to 48 hours while you died in a, a painful humiliating death. That's what the Romans did. And Jesus tells this man, you lack one thing, sell everything, pick up your cross, and follow me. So we're past playing patty cake, patty cake on the back half of the Ten Commandments. You lack one thing, money is your God, and I am the Lord. And you need to pick up your cross and follow me. And then you will have life and you will lack nothing. He was unwilling to do that. Because when Jesus bids a woman to follow him or a man to follow him, he bids us to our death. The death of our pride, the death of our flesh, the death of our self-will. We must decrease. He must increase. And it is painful. And it is very necessary. Because otherwise you're just left to be in the daughter of Eve without redemption in the power of the Holy Spirit or the son of Adam without redemption and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus bids us to a Holy Spirit-induced crucifixion of everything offensive in our sinful nature when he calls us to himself. And there is no way to candy-coat that, and there is no way around that. All the money in the world can't keep you from it, and being blind and broken can't keep you from it, who we'll get to in a moment with Bartimaeus. Jesus calls equally to himself, and he gave them a visual of the most heinous punishment that Roman inflicted, Rome, the, the world power, inflicted on humanity at their day, and he says, "This is what needs to happen with you to follow me." Now, of course, with Jesus, he said, "Unless you eat of my body, you can by no means follow me." And they're always like they, the people always had a hard time understanding the spiritual, which was the main point behind the physical. But needless to say, we do know in early Rome, Christians were crucified publicly, literally. And throughout history, even ISIS was crucifying Christians in the Middle East in the last few years, publicly, in their identity with Christ. Jesus died for our sins, and he's called us to a better life and a higher life and an eternal life than the one that we have born into and were condemned under. And all the money in the world can't stop this, and all the poverty in the world can't prevent this. We all come to Christ equally in the same standing through faith in Jesus Christ to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Him. This guy had the talk, but he didn't have the walk. So think this through for a minute. Think about what he said. What good thing shall I do? He thought of himself to earn eternal life. So when it was up to him, he had the talk. But when Jesus said, Follow me and pick up your cross, he needed the walk but he wasn't willing to walk. He was not willing to die to his self-will to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ for his salvation. He was not willing. Most of you here tonight are willing. That's why you're here. Now maybe some of you here tonight and you've not been willing. We must be willing of our own volitional will to surrender to Christ because that is the purpose in his coming. His brutal death on the cross is not so we can continue to be the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve living for our flesh. His death on the cross is the death to all the offends that will destroy us within to liberate us from that because whom the son sets free is free indeed. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, he sets the captives free, free from the power of sin over our life, free from the power of the devil to manipulate and put us in bondage to our sin and free from the grave that taunts us as the ultimate consequence of the sin of humanity in this universe. Everything Jesus would crucify in our life by his spirit is for our own good. Everything he'd crucify in this man's life was for his own good. What could the rich young ruler have been in the early church in the book of Acts? What might he have been in the local church in Jerusalem? What might he have been in Samaria as the church expended? What might he have been with the missionary journeys? What part might he have played a role in with his wealth or his time or his energy and his resources? But instead, on this day, the gospel came and he looked at God in the flesh. And he went away sad because he chose his wealth over the gospel of Jesus Christ. He chose his wealth and his self-made religion over a relationship that he was called to through the son, the one meter between man and God, Christ Jesus. That's what he did. You talk about a decision on one day affecting your total destiny. We have no reason to believe this person ever came to Christ. Maybe he did. And good for him if he did. But he's in the Bible, the same story on different accounts, as a warning to us of just one thing keeping us from the kingdom, which bodes the question, what one thing might keep us from the kingdom? What one thing? See, the devil knows it just takes one thing to keep you and I from coming to Christ. The devil knows it just takes one thing to keep you and I from going forward in Christ. What one thing that can supplant the affection and the submission to the perfect love and grace and plan of God, the devil knows what that is and is gonna try and play that card against us from here to eternity. And we must purpose in our hearts To put Christ over that one thing that will keep us from all things that God intends for us. The Bible says when Satan tempted Jesus that he departed until an opportune time, and he does show up at an opportune time. Recently, listening to a classic Pastor Chuck message, when the devil comes in like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard against him. He preached that message in the early 80s. And the way he articulated how it's a perfect storm, and Satan is patient as an adversary. He'll wait years for the right situation to play that one card, that one thing, to keep us from all things that God has for us. That's why Peter would tell us, be sober, be vigilant, for the devil your adversary goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Finally, so resist him in the faith, is what Peter said. You feel sorry for the rich young ruler because he thought he could save himself, and in the end, he was just required to let go of one thing, and to make Jesus the number one thing, and he was unwilling to do it. He had the talk, but he didn't have the walk. And it's a good word for us to think about: not missing what God has because of one dream or one relationship or one sin or one pursuit, but to continually uh, keep our to to have like Paul said to the Corinthians: to seek the mind of Christ, to press into the Lord, and to keep ourselves tender to the Lord. He missed it. And you know the back part of this where it says that um, the apostles, it's the apostles verse 26, those who heard it, it it says the apostles and disciples in the other two accounts in the other gospels. So they're like, they're completely blown away. Like, oh oh my goodness, because this guy looks like he's the right guy. He's a really good citizen. He, He does everything the right way. And it's like, how can, if this guy's not saved, who can be saved? But look what Jesus said. It's impossible with man, but it's possible with God. See, God, when our faith responds to the gospel and the invitation to Christ, then the Holy Spirit meets us there and God gives us the power to do it. See, God doesn't say, do this and earn that and then I'll receive you. God says, come to me and I'll empower you to do what I'm calling you to do. So what what this rich young ruler needed was just the faith to let go and trust in Jesus. And then Jesus would change his heart and give him a new heart and completely change him. We're going to see in the next chapter when Zacchaeus sets eyes on Jesus, he's the biggest thief in Jericho with legal support to do it from Rome. But when Jesus comes to his house and has dinner with him, he's like, I restore fourfold. See, Zacchaeus believed and had faith. And when Jesus had dinner with him, Zacchaeus knew exactly what was the one thing in his life, and Jesus never even brought it up according to the accounts that we read in Luke. Just Jesus being in his living room, loving on him, showing him grace and mercy, and and being there. And of all people, the house of Zacchaeus, the terrible tax collector, Zacchaeus understood the grace that came, and he believed in Jesus, and he said, Lord, look, I restore fourfold. He's quoting the law. Zacchaeus is quoting the Old Testament when he says, I'm going to restore everything I took. Because it's the mercy of the Lord that brings a man to repentance, Romans tells us. It's the goodness of the Lord. Zacchaeus was already a broken man. God resisted poverty, gives grace to the humble. See, Zacchaeus was a broken man, and grace changed him, and he apprehended faith in Jesus, and he moved upon it and what is impossible with man, how do you change the tax collector that rips off everybody in the community, is possible with God because once there's faith, anything is possible. And once you and I are yielded to the Lord, he can, he can do anything. It's said in the Old Testament, can a leper change his spots? No, but Christ gives us a new nature because if any man or woman be in Christ, they are a new creation and all things are new and old things have passed away. See, the rich young ruler, the moment he would just acted in faith and responding, that which was impossible for him would become possible through Christ in him who works in us for his good pleasure. It's the faith. It's the first step of faith. And then it all happens. But he didn't have faith. He just had his own religion that deceived him. And he went away sorrowful. It was right there. It was right there. Jesus right there, the apostle said, it's impossible with him, but it's possible with God. He just has to put his faith in God. That's all that had to happen. Jesus would say later on, shortly after this, if you have faith, you can say this mountain and do this and do that. It's a hyperbole, of course, but it is an emphasis on the power of prayer and the power of faith for believing prayer. Now we read on. Peter steps in now and says something, which is not that unusual, really, is it? Verse 28, Peter says this, See, we have left all and followed you. And so he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parent or brother or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. And then he took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon they will scourge him and kill him and the third day he will rise again but they understood none of these things this saying was hidden from them and they did not know the things which were spoken so interesting flow in this order of the narrative by the holy spirit so peter he's thinking we like that about Peter. He think, You know, he speaks sometimes before he thinks, but he also thinks and speaks. About this time is the same time that John and James were telling Jesus, uh, John and James sent their mother to Jesus saying, like, hey, can you just make them, like, rule on your right side and your left side? They're all vying for power, and their idea that the Messiah is going to establish a kingdom is well-rooted in the Old Testament based upon certain scriptures, but their understanding that the Messiah would come the first time to... Establish the kingdom through faith, in him through his death, burial, and resurrection is not clearly understood by them. And so it's very paradoxical in their mind. He says to the rich young ruler, pick up your cross and follow me. You see Peter and the apostles going like, why would he say that? He's going to Jerusalem to establish the kingdom. Like, why would he say? We just don't get that part of his theology at all. Why would he say that? But Peter says, well, look, we've left everything for you and followed you, which they had. We go back to Luke chapter 5, Peter and Andrew's brother, John and James, the brothers. The two sets of brothers were in the fishing business together. Zebedee was John and James's dad. And Jesus literally said, follow me. And we read they did. They left their opportunity of income, their trade. They left their family. And they followed Jesus. They were all in. Just like when Matthew was at the tax collector's booth and Jesus said, Follow me. He left it. He was all in. I shared that story not so long ago about the guy when he, I asked him what kept him from giving his life to Christ, and he said, $25,000 worth of crystal meth in my closet. And I said, Well, the moment we pour that out, you're all in with Jesus. Those guys are going to kill me. No, they're not. Just tell him you gave your life to Christ and done with business. It's exactly what he did. It's exactly what happened. And they let it go. He's been serving the Lord for 30 years ever since. All in, going for it. That's what Peter, Peter, you know, Peter said, Well, oh, by the way, okay, not that we're trying to self-promote right now in this group setting, but Jesus, we have left everything for you. What you've asked this man to do, we've done it. Now we might expect a response from our boss or from the Lord or anyone else like, or your parents like, yeah, you have. Like it's super commendable. That's awesome it is but jesus affirms a promise he simply says there's no one who's followed him that has left the security of home parents family brother wife children for the sake of the kingdom that should not receive many more times in this present time that is time space and matter and the age to come eternal life the age that never ends
0: Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And also follow Pastor Joey on Instagram under the tag name at Brand. Thanks for listening and God not ashamed, bless. Not ashamed, not of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the one I love. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed.